0: Now here, the uh, Noble Eightfold Path is described as such is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So we've discussed the first three of the Four Noble Truths already. The origin of suffering, uh, sorry, the suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, uh, letting go the clinging, and now the way, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. And um, the Noble Eightfold Path to be considered the um, actual path of practice. One says that first we practice the Noble Eightfold Path and eventually one becomes the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is divided into three parts, just like the whole of the teaching is divided into three parts. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Sila, Moral Conduct, Samadhi, Concentration, Panya, Wisdom, or Insight. And these three are always mentioned in this way of first the Sila, then the Samadhi, then the Panya, in, in that progression. However, in the Noble Eightfold Path, it works, doesn't work that way it goes tanya sila samadhi. First the wisdom, then the moral conduct, and then the concentration. Again, we don't have to consider this like a ladder, but rather we should look upon it as an eight-lane highway. And we can drive along any one of the lanes which is particularly appropriate at that moment. So when we reach our destination, we have covered all eight steps. Yet, it is not accidental that wisdom is mentioned first. It's highly unlikely that the Buddhists essence of the teaching would have any accident in it but it is deliberate and the deliberate part of it is that there is wisdom needed to even get started on a spiritual path that inner wisdom which tells one that as as saying in the um, Bible is. Man does not live by bread alone. It is not possible to be contented and satisfied with a totally materialistic outlook for a thinking and introspective person. It is not possible to be satisfied with a hedonistic outlook for anyone who wants to go a little deeper. So, That kind of wisdom is needed to even get interested. And the wisdom aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, which of course consists of eight uh, factors, has two aspects, right view and right intention. Now the very first one is right view. And right view has to be seen from at least two angles. The first one is that it is the right view of getting started and realizing that it is entirely up to each one of us that we have the view of being responsible for our own actions and our own results. And that this responsibility that we take for our actions, which is making karma and the responsibility we take for the results, puts us in the position where we realize that we can practice to change action and result. In other words, we have enough wisdom to know that change is needed and change is possible. It, it counteracts self-satisfaction. It is usually connected with a certain discontentment within oneself and an ac- acceptance of that discontentment, not trying to cover it over, but accepting it where it is there and thereby gaining access to a spiritual path, spiritual teaching. So right view has that as its first step, that we know change is needed and change is possible. Now, in the ultimate sense, after having traversed the Noble Eightfold Path and perfected each step, we come back, to absolute right view. And absolute right view means right view of self, which means right view or view of non-self. So in the first instance, right view brings us to the practice and having then perfected or developed and perfected the practice, it brings us to that which shows us an absolute reality and a different perspective. Now, right you in Pali is samaditi. Samma means right and diti means you. And the word diti by itself, without the samma put in front, should just mean you. But it always means wrong view. And the Buddha said in the very first discourse of the long collection of the Digha Nikaya, give a discourse on the net of views and he gives an overall heading of 62 views which are supposed to um, consolidate all views that human beings possibly could have under those 62 headings. And he says every one of them is wrong because every one of them is discolored by our view of self. It is a view which is based on the way we see it ourselves, recognize it ourselves, from the standpoint of this is me and that's the world. Only when that particular aspect has been eliminated, this is me and this is the world, Can we ever get samadhi, absolute right view? Now, obviously, this is a perfection. And uh, over and over again, I want to emphasize that we are practices. So we take steps. We do not expect perfection. If we have an expectation of perfection, we are bound to be disappointed. And we can't keep our mind on the practice because we're going to have our mind on the expectation, which equally applies to every meditative uh, endeavor that we've ever made or ever will make. If we have an expectation, we can't be mindful of the meditative subject. The same goes here. The same applies here. So we have a beginning right view and an ultimate right view, and an ultimate right view then comes to the point of seeing the world and self in a different light. But we can already realize why also I've been talking about being grateful for the practice that we can do here and the opportunity because that already denotes the initial right view. To do practice like this, to try to change from a worldling to a noble one. A person who has gained access to the stream of Nibbana is called a noble one, an Arya, an Arya Pugala, a noble person. And um, that right view of practicing like that is already a great benefit, of great benefit to us. So we have already a relative right view. We may not have the absolute right view yet, but we certainly have a relative right view. We're sitting here trying to do something about it. And from uh, the next step after that, the right intention. connects with the right you in this way. If it is clear to us that we ourselves are responsible for action and results, and if it's clear to us that change is possible and necessary, our intentions, which are our karma-making mental formations, will more and more veer into the direction of purification, of purity. The Buddha said, Karma, O monks, I declare is intention. The word karma itself, literally translated, means action. And it was also, in the Buddhist India, used as such. But one of his innovations, of which there were quite a few, is this particular one. It does not mean action. It means intention behind the action. Of course, two people can do the same action and have entirely different intentions. And the, the resultant, which we also call karma, which should be called vipaka, but it has been um, sort of habitually used as the word karma, the resultant will be quite different according to the intention. This is one aspect of right intention. The rightness of the intention means the purity of the intention and which again brings us to the mindfulness of our mental state where we can check our intention. This is a very important point, checking one's intention, because we can fool ourselves very easily. We can be quite deluded about our intentions. It looks really nice what we're doing, but the intention behind it is maybe, could be egocentric. It could be doing something nice, doing something good for the reason of wanting to be liked, wanting to be appreciated, wanting to be thought of well. All of these may be the motivation. In other words, we need to check our motivations. And some of them are very difficult to distinguish. They appear on the surface to be quite pure, and yet underneath there is the ego lurking. Now obviously, with an ego intact, or maybe almost intact, it will always rear its rather ugly head. And we may not even know that it's doing that. We may not even recognize that it has an ugly head, because it's our habit. We are habit-prone. So our motivations are not as straightforward as we would probably like them to be, or as they would be very easy to recognize. They're very often hidden in quite a number of ego-centered ideas which take away from their purity. This is only natural. This is not to be construed to be blameworthy. This is natural on the practice path. But what is necessary is to recognize. And that means more mindfulness, more inner recognition. The more we recognize ourselves within, and it's not an easy thing to do, (coughs) the more we become aware of those hidden motivations. And as we become aware of them, we may be able to drop them gently, slowly, one after another. As long as there's an ego, there are ego-centered intentions. Now, again when we have the wish, the motivation to do something good. And there is the ego-centered motivation behind that, which I've already mentioned. It is still better to go ahead and do the good thing with that ego-centered motivation behind it than to not do it at all. Now, in the East, this is very prominent with doing something good in order to make merit is a very prominent thing happens all the time and it's still better to do it than not to do it in the East one doesn't have even to mention it it's part of the culture and because it's part of the culture it's difficult to recognize in our case although it's not part of our culture it's equally difficult to recognize because our motivation are all of them are ego-centered. we haven't got any motivations that aren't ego-centered because we've got the ego in within all the time, unless we have already reached a point where the ego has disappeared a little bit and doesn't come forward constantly. But that is already a very big step in the practice. A, a Long, uh, long practice. So we have to be aware of the fact that this is a natural thing within us and that it just takes our continual mindfulness to recognize it. And as you recognize it, eventually what happens is that the doing of good can actually be done for the simple sake of doing it and you will recognize that state when you're no longer concerned about the results and that's when the doing good actually functions to its fullest extent until then there will always be impediments they're natural, they have to be taken in stride no blame attached to oneself But when the mindfulness becomes so strong, and the ego has already become weaker, then that results, the doing good for the sake of doing good. And it's very easily recognizable because there is also a lack of stress and strain whether the goodness which one has done has had the result one has envisioned which is always connected with worry. Will it work out the way I'm trying to make it work or will it not? Are the people all gonna know what I'm doing? Are they gonna actually act the way I thought they should? And all the rest of that. It's connected with worry, stress and strain in the mind. When that has been dropped, it's very noticeable in oneself because the result is no longer the criteria. It's the action itself. Naturally, the results will be far better and far easier to attain because there's much greater purity in the action. So there will be easier results. Is that quite clear? Any questions possibly on this particular aspect because this is the wisdom part of the Noble Eightfold Path, the first one, the right view, second one, right intention, before I get on to the next one, anything, any questionable aspect? With the introspection of the intention, which I have gone into quite um, detailed, we can also practice, of course, the introspection or the mindfulness into our views. And an Arahant is very often, an enlightened one, is very often uh, explained as being without views. Now, this is another aspect of the wisdom part, the first one, the right view, and worthwhile investigating. Views and opinions are based on ego-centered ideas. And the stronger we hang on to them, the more we cling to them, the more difficult it is to shift to a totally different perspective. Our views and opinions are ego-supporters. And when we say things like I can't stand people who smoke or I always react um, with um, displeasure when somebody talks about the war, we are announcing views and opinions. Ego support. I am like that. Even though we make it sound nice, because smoking is not a good thing, and the war is also not, we make it sound very nice. It is still an ego support. This is my view. This is me. I am like that. The views and opinions um, naturally, we have them. There's no way that we wouldn't have them. but they should be taken with a grain of salt, our own. Naturally, other people they'll have to worry about that. And this is one of the benefits of labeling when there are distracting thoughts in meditation. Because at that time, one becomes very much aware of the fact that so much of this thinking that is happening in the mind has neither rhyme nor reason, nor does it have any intrinsic value, nor does it give any insight. It's just thinking. And when one has that kind of perspective about one's own thinking process, naturally, one takes one's own views and opinions not so seriously. They just are. They arise and they pass away. And as I said yesterday, if you remember, if you write them down in your diary and read them two years later, you're going to find that yourself either you're going to laugh or cry about them. Because they're no longer pertinent. They have nothing to do with who you think you are there at two years later. And this is a very helpful way of dealing with those views and opinions which obviously will come up in our daily lives um, because they also give us a chance to be less clinging to what we think is correct, letting more live and let live, accept other people's views as their views, not worry about them too much. (coughs) Another, reducing of our identification system, which is extremely helpful and can only really result um, and happen when we have the meditative practice where we can see that all this thinking has really no basis in fact. This this um, first part here of wisdom, with right view in a relative way, and of course right intention, very much um, geared to uh, karma, we can look at one other aspect of intention, which is very uh, helpful to gain more insight into ourselves, which is the aspect of mind ordering the body about. Which is sometimes mentioned as the word intention but um, has the um, benefit of recognizing that mind is the most important aspect of our being the one that Should be attended to with the greatest diligence, the one that keeps us in samsara, in the birth of round and uh, round of birth and death, sorry, and the one that also has enlightenment within. And that the body is nothing but a servant to the mind, and that all our reactions to it to the body are of our own children, that they are not a given. They don't have to be. So the intention in the mind is something that will show us clearly when mindfully attended to that we are consisting of mind and the body, the two things which make up the five aggregate, and that mind is by far the more important. Following the the wisdom part of the Noble Eightfold Path, we come to the moral conduct part, which has to be part of any spiritual path worth its name. If there is a spiritual path which doesn't have morality embedded in it, it's not even worth considering. Morality protects us, first of all, from bad karma, making bad karma, protects us from impediments which um, are obstacles on our way, and is a purifying factor for our character. The way it's worded in the Noble Eightfold Path is right action, right speech, right livelihood. Now, action and speech are embedded in the noble, uh, the uh, five um, precepts. And um, they're just, in this case, taken apart, and uh, the action and the speech separated. Do you remember the five precepts which you took at the beginning here? One of them is speech and the other four are actions. And doing right action and using right speech is here implemented with right livelihood. And that one always um, gives rise to a lot of questions. What is right livelihood and what isn't? And the criteria is whether one is breaking any of the five precepts by the simple procedure of trying to earn a living. And if one isn't breaking any of the five precepts, one is certainly not having wrong livelihood. So we can always use the livelihood which we have chosen to see whether the precepts are being broken because there is uh, that is part of that particular livelihood, and if it is, then it should be refrained from. The other uh, criteria is also that it is a protection for our own integrity. If our if we are putting ourselves in situations through making a living, where there is um great deal either of cruelty or lying or um, corruption going on. We will be corrupted by it. The strength of mind of an unenlightened worldling is not sufficient to withstand its environment. That's why we need to be careful where we are and with whom we are. The Buddha mentions, as I told you already once and I'll repeat it now, noble friends, wise and mature people, many times as a necessity for a good life, a spiritual life. We are easily influenced and easily corrupted. Somebody only needs to say a detrimental thing about another person, and our mind starts churning away and thinking, well, maybe really they are like that. Maybe they're really awful. I never noticed it, but I am a little uh, slow in noticing things like that. Yes, I really think these are people. This person is terrible. I I shouldn't talk to them anymore just because somebody else said that they don't like that person. Very common. Now that's only a very mild corruption of mind, but uh, corruption of mind which happens when we associate with people who are actually doing wrong things and going along with that, wrong in the sense of breaking the precepts, our mind would get even more corrupted. Our mind needs protection, and we are the ones that are to protect it. Nobody else will protect it for us. And that's why we should always use clear and incisive thinking and not emotional thinking. Emotional thinking is detrimental to clarity. Emotional thinking is based on what I like and what I don't like. And that's based on what seems to be comfortable and pleasant and very often easy. there was a sticker on a car which I saw, I think it was here in Australia, and it said, if it feels good, it must be right. Well, one should investigate such a thing. It doesn't have that at all as its logical conclusion. What we Consider feeling good is very often that, what is most comfortable for us, the easy way out, the uh, ego support. All these things feel good. So when we have to determine what is moral conduct, what is right livelihood, none of that emotional aspect of what feels nice should enter but it has to be clear incisive thinking. And that clarity and incisiveness of thinking comes about from the purification of emotions. And this is one of the um, sentences I use over and over again in order to help with mem- memorizing it, is the purification of emotions brings clarity of thinking. When our emotions are eventually to the point of only containing loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, our clarity of thinking will never be impaired. Again, I like to point out that this is the ideal, the perfection, but not the practice path. The practice path is trying to go along step by step to do it that way. Any emotion, which is not based on one of those four, will be detrimental to the clarity of our own thinking. Because all of that will be swamped And if we don't have learned mindfulness, and mindfulness is learnable, of course, otherwise the Buddha wouldn't have talked about it. If we don't learn it and practice it on ourselves, this is probably one of the most difficult areas to get into. Our thinking which is impaired by our emotions, which are based on that what we like. Because we can't see very well beyond our own noses. It's very difficult. That difficult thing to do. So actually the pathway which promises the best results, is not trying to think more clearly. Of course, we can do that too. There's nothing wrong with trying to do that. But the pathway which promises the best results is to try to purify the emotions. And again, there we need that enormous attention to the motives, the motivation, the intention behind it. When the impurity of the emotions arises, the clarity of thinking is automatic. Naturally, the jhanas are enormously helpful. One second of concentration is one second of purification. So, what to speak about an hour of concentration? or two hours a day, every day, for the rest of one's life, or something like that. Very helpful. Now, the um, right livelihood is something that everybody has to sort out by themselves. and. Um, something which does not appear in the five precepts, which is interesting, Um, because it is something here in the Noble Eightfold Path, because the five precepts do do not yet presuppose that one is actually practicing. The five precepts only presuppose that one tries to lead a um, good human life, one where one protects oneself and others from any e- evil it does not presuppose that one uh, meditates it does not presuppose that one wants to uh, attain liberation it is a basic understanding of leading a decent human life whereas here with the Noble Eightfold Path the supposition has already arisen that the right view is there that one actually wants to practice. And their right livelihood then plays a very important part. And the important part being that we are very much um, influenced and molded by what we do every day. It's very noticeable when people, for instance, take some time out to live in a monastery for a while not just a short period of time but a long period of time because what one does there every day molds one's character now the longer one stays of course the more it molds but uh, even some period of time does mold one and if one for instance uh, should be working god forbid in an abattoir one will be molded by that And this is something that people in helping professions, such as doctors and nurses, often are prone to. They see a lot of suffering. And because they have not entered upon a spiritual practice, their only protection becomes a sort of shield, which is indifference. That is often the case, because otherwise, if they didn't do that and they don't know what else to do, they could, what we call, burn out and uh, could no longer function. So they protect themselves that way. Um, Naturally, it's the wrong way to protect oneself like that, but we do see that quite a lot. Um, The right way, of course, is to know one's own suffering and being able to deal with it and thereby being able to deal with other people's suffering. But that takes virtual practice and not everybody who is a nurse or a doctor can immediately practice that sort of thing. So the suffering that one sees and attends to, in that case, could bring about a sort of, um, well, indifference and coldness and the same would appear if somebody were to have a job of killing living beings, it would become callous, a person like that would have to become callous. They couldn't help it, they'd have to, they couldn't stand it otherwise. The mind would have to do that in order to protect it from being totally um, upset and uh, having to leave the job, obviously. So we have that as an important aspect of practice. Now, in this particular um, progression of the Noble Eightfold Path, the speech is actually mentioned before the action. It says white speech first and then right action. Speech is mentioned by the Buddha many times in many different discourses as being a very important aspect of our relationship with other people. Naturally, it is so. Now, in a meditation course, we try to refrain from bothering other people with our speech. We just have to attend to our own chattering mind. And since we do attend to that with mindfulness, we become aware of the fact that most of it is totally unnecessary. The same applies to our speech and daily life. Most of it is totally unnecessary. It is one of the most um, uh, most popular parlor games, conversation. And uh, it doesn't cost a thing. It's uh, free, no, no, no money in, uh, involved. And uh, it's also practically always available. And should be there, no other person available. There's always the radio, the television, or the telephone. Meaningful speech is what the Buddha has in mind. The word speech here con- contains the aspects of not lying, no harsh words. No backbiting, no gossiping, and no idle chatter. Now, obviously, the last one is one that is broken, as far as the precept is concerned, by practically everybody who's a human being. Um, And we need a fair bit of mindfulness to recognize what is idle chatter and what is. Now, if, for instance, we say to somebody, Oh, hello, how are you? It's totally meaningless. But if we say to somebody, Hello, how are you feeling? And we really want to know, to let that person know that we're interested in how their physical well-being is. It's not adolescent. It's loving kindness. And yet the words are almost identical. It's the intention behind it. So we have, of course, uh, very often speech with others in order to have a sort of a relationship to the other person. And if that is the intention to show that we mean well with the other person and that we are interested in the other person, that there is a connection being made between us, it's not out of But if it's nothing but trying to get out of, recognizing our own suffering, and uh, trying to pass the time away, then of course it is. So the words could actually be almost identical. It's always the intention behind it. Now, obviously, talking is and expenditure of energy. And um, a meditator can feel that strongly. So we need to know whether we are expending our energy yes. wisely. It's very important whether it is an expenditure which is done in a wise way. Whether the speech which we are using has meaning behind it. Another thing which is important about uh, <coughs> speech is that, there, that we could find ourselves in a situation where people just chatter, gossip, backbite, whatever. And we're in it. We're there because it's being done. It would behoove us at that time to try to channel the conversation differently. Now that also takes mindfulness because we are very much um, um, minimally drawn into whatever is being talked about. That mindfulness can be established through watching our own chatter in the mind outside of meditation. In meditation, it isn't all that difficult because we don't really want to have that chatter. We'd much rather become concentrated. But outside of meditation, to watching that chatter in the mind creates a mindfulness that will then stand us in good stead when we are in the uh, presence of that same sort of chatter with other people and we may be able to channel it in a different direction. That takes a fair bit of skill. And the Buddha says that right speech is a skill and therefore learnable. It is not something that we are blessed with right from birth. And if you've ever watched a baby and a child learning to speak, you will know that we are not blessed with that Right from the beginning, it takes a fair bit of learning to even speak our mother tongue. Never mind. Detrimental. Emotionalism is a word which I use in the context of the impure. Emotions, the pure ones are the ones that give us a base for rectitude and um, purity. So. All this, all of it, needs the attention which we call mindfulness. Without it, we won't be able to recognize. The speech aspect of this um, purification is naturally based on our mind states. So if we watch our mind state, we will, of course, have Uh, the proper kind of speech. Sometimes our mind states may escape us. Then we'll have to pay attention to the speech. Very strong attention because the speech is already coming out. So our best defense against any um, bad karma or any disharmonious uh, speech or action is watching our mind state, And therefore, you can see that the noble eightfold path is also part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the watching of the content of the mind, even though right speech is part of it. And so is right action. But all of it depends on the mind. State. So when we watch our mind states, the speech will undoubtedly come out correctly. Our speech are, of course, not only words. The more we meditate, the more sensitive we become, the more alert we become to all that which is behind the words, the feelings. whole of the being which is one reason and a very great one why in the time of the Buddha people were able to become enlightened by listening to one Dhamma talk would be nice if we could do that we could all go home now but unfortunately we haven't got the Buddha it wasn't the words What's 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 behind some people are very convincing and others are and we often know I'm sure everybody does when a person is lying we are too polite to say anything and that's right, we shouldn't because it would be hurtful even though it's true but we know and sometimes we may be Inclined not to believe our feelings. That that was being said, not true. We should not doubt ourselves. If we have a definite feeling of somebody saying an untruth, We we can believe it ourselves. We can believe ourselves. The same goes for hearing the truth. When we hear something that is true, such as the teaching of the Buddha. so, that to get our our in behavior. But when we hear it's true, we should accept it as true. Resistance often arises many times in people who hear this kind of teaching. They know it's true. They actually go out to square as to say it. It's true. I don't want any part of it. Why? Because they don't want to accept that truth inside of themselves because it denotes a little more strenuous self-improvement. So we should not resist what we ourselves can hear behind the words the more we hear behind the words the more we have that inner connection to the vibrations which are going on around us constantly and not only human of course the world is made up of that so we can actually through speech and through our mindfulness of listening which is part of loving kindness also listening to others um learn a great deal about things which we can't touch or see or even hear but we can accept through feeling right speech was Um, mentioned by the Buddha in the uh, Great Blessings discourse as one of the Great Blessings. And it is something that must never, ever, be considered possible on a superficial level. We may know our language very well. We know, we may know how to be polite. All of us do. We do know how to say the right thing at the right time it's totally unconvincing there's no feeling behind it and we all can feel it from others and so they can feel it from us too. the speech has to denote our own mind state and our own feeling and then it becomes truthful speech that truthful speech the non-lying goes further, and just saying that uh, uh, I didn't take the cookies. It goes further than that. It goes to that deepest recesses of one's being. One can, of course, use all of these uh, instructions of by the Buddha on a superficial level, on a deeper level, and on the deepest level. It depends, and uh, uh, completely depends for every person how they're practicing, and how well that practice is ingrained into one's own inner being. Practice can be anything. As I said to you before, many people think practicing is sitting here with one's legs crossed and trying to watch the breath. They think that's practice. That's one part of practice. Just like flour is one ingredient of a cake. That's not the whole cake. This is only one part of it. So this, um, um, the Noble Eightfold path, as it denotes our practice path, when we become that, we have practiced to the deepest depth. The right action part is concerned about the other four precepts, not killing, not stealing, not uh, sexual misconduct and no drugs or intoxicating, drugs or drinks. And this is considered to be the right action part. It goes further than that, of course. It goes along again with our karma making. It goes along with the fact that we have the right intention and from that right intention, which is in the mind, the right action ensues. The right action which we may be able to pinpoint encumbered with a body. And this body is a rather gross substance and needs to be fed all the time and uh, needs all sorts of uh, input as far as food and drink is concerned. There is, of course, involuntary killing can't be helped. That is part of having this body. The only thing that we can do is try to be as harmless as it is consistent with having this body. In other words, as you walk out there, you will undoubtedly kill some ants. It's absolutely impossible not to do that when one is in the forest. There are so many millions of that the intention of killing them is what will be our um, to our detriment. The intention of not killing them, in other words, when you see them, to get out of their way, that is the harmlessness. But having this gross body which weighs so and so many kilos and when it steps on an ant it will undoubtedly kill it is part of our heritage as a human being. That's why the Buddha said, intention is karma. So the, um, our actions need to be geared towards <laughs> absolutely, harmony and towards ourselves in recognizing what is to our great benefit If we actually love ourselves, this wisdom, and this is always the thing that makes all the difference. therefore we have that wisdom, we have none, connected to love then we will know what is okay that's done the um, moral conduct part do you have any comment questions Well, directly to the other person. Ah. Well, it depends what the intention is again. If the intention is to save the person to one is one is talking from doing something which could be harmful to them, it could be considered to be uh, a valid thing to do. But if it's Strictly for gossip's sake, it is not. So again, one has to be very clear on that. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult, isn't it? <laughs> because it all seems to be, there seem to be gray areas which seem to overlap. So, mindfulness, investigation, introspection, over and over again. I'm
1: thinking that as yeah, culturally, wild. Any
0: criticism whatsoever about a third person to another was
1: considered bad. Mm -hmm. Well, it could be. It's everything.
0: Mm. So I find it hard to. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. uh, If in doubt, probably best not to do it. Unless one knows exactly that there is a good intention behind it, an intention which is supposed to help the person that one is talking to. If that is the intention, then it could be valid, yes. But it is a difficult one. Yes, go ahead. i just
1: like comment I and I know the
0: Works in the abattoir there. Oh, really? <laughs> um, it from to mm-hmm. And
1: I wouldn't say I know them so very well, I don't. But they I'm always cry <coughs> with their
0: Thinking about it makes me feel a so bit funny, but they were very nice people. <laughs> extremely really nice people—they brought up their children well. They went to church on Sundays, and uh, they uh, didn't do anything, uh, you know, that sort of looked terrible. However, I would assume—I again, I don't know them inside out, you know—but I would assume that their emotional purification is not exactly taking place because of that cruelty which has to happen at that time. I mean he actually once admitted that he didn't really like doing it but he couldn't see any other way of dealing with it. So he was becoming aware of the fact that it wasn't a very nice thing to do. That seemed to me already a step in the right direction because many of the farmers don't even consider that that it's not a nice thing so then it's a natural thing to do so um, I thought he was you know, becoming more sensitive to the uh, suffering of the animal um, now he wouldn't have been doing that as often as the people in the abattoir people in the abattoir are doing it day in and day out are not they and uh, it's hard to talk about somebody you have never met and have never seen but their their inner um, sensitivity must be impaired I couldn't imagine it otherwise but I mean I did visit an upper 12 once and that's the only time I'll ever go there it is not a pleasant place to be I've seen it once and it wasn't enough so, um, I can't imagine that their inner sensitivity would allow them to be very open to people. And he had uh, innumerable uh, female playmates, and he had musicians, and he had the, all the luxuries which one had in those days when one was a prince in a rich household and he he realized none of that made him happy he then went out into the forest and practiced asceticism to a very extreme degree the extremity of this asceticism uh, story goes that he held his breath until the breath came whistling out his ears and he would live on one rice grain a day until the front of his touch the backbone uh, what sort of thing, and that type of thing so he said no neither way does any good at all there has to be a middle way but he does not say there has to be a middle way in the right view right intention, right speech, right action and right livelihood, no middle way at all that is just either right or practicing to become right but it isn't that there's any leeway in the one when it's has become right. So the middle part has no reference to any of that. Okay? So now the question remains, what do you do when you have a view in daily life and somebody else has another view? Right. Uh, if it touches upon your own integrity of your own spiritual development, you will have to fix your get away if you can get a reason. You can provide them, but you don't get angry if you have a person has another view the right, person has another view. I mean, they just have another view. They may be angry at you for having a different view. I mean, it happens all the time. But, but we don't have to retaliate by having by being angry at them for having a different view. But at this point in time, we have to speak to the view which concerns our own uh, well-being as we see it. And the views. That the Buddha talks about which are right or opposingly wrong in an enlightened one the view is right because it's no longer based on the assumption that there is a me sitting within anybody including oneself whereas the view of an ordinary person is therefore wrong because it's based on assumption that there's a me sitting here. However that cannot be helped at this point in time. So, we have to stay with the view which is least harmful to oneself and others, and accept that the view is not shared by others. Was that what you were asking?
1: It is to you actually practice.
0: Well then then tell me what the actual thing is with, uh, Sort of, uh, uh, the real example. I can't think of a really good example. have been talking
1: people, um, now, uh, to, um uh, I can't think of a good example. I'm think well, take C, for example. One uh, person A might say that, but you don't need to B. person C might say food to be good, and you might, good. might be with food. Um, what happens is I just say, hey,
0: okay, i go ahead. No, well, I've already told you that. You stay with that which you believe true, but you give it give the other person the benefit that their views are different. I mean you take a in
1: from
0: there. was that the question? The question was do you give it? The question wasn't do you throw it? it? That wasn't the way the question found in the first place. But anyway, do you stop somebody from giving poison to another? Because you're it's poison. without anger, without upset, without anxiety, without fear. And if you can't stop somebody from doing something, it's going to be harmful certainly. Most of the time you can't stop anybody from doing anything.
2: (laughs) Believe me, I tried.
0: (laughs) And I'm very vocal. Exactly
2: work.
0: (laughs) We also really must remember that some that view that you're talking about is not a good example at all. Because the view could be based on actual knowledge. And if it's based on knowledge it's no longer a view. Yes. You see, if you have an actual knowledge of something, and not a view of something, then it isn't a matter of pronouncing one's view when there is an actual knowledge. So, which is also something that we could consider in the, in the terms of the enlightened one. An enlightened one has actual knowledge. He doesn't have views. He knows. You see, this is what the Buddha said about himself when people were asking him, He said, what is your opinion about this? You know, Brahmins would come and ask him questions. What do you think about this? What's your opinion? Just like we say to somebody, what's your opinion? And the Buddha said, no, I don't have an opinion. I know. And then he would propound that, whatever it was that he knew. And it would be based on such a depth of and profundity of understanding that the listener would have no question in the mind anymore that the Buddha really knew. So if it's based on knowledge, it is in the view. And if view is connected, you know, with something that's only in the view, the so guest. You make up another example of that.
2: okay. You make up another example. You make up another example of that. I'm <laughs>
0: comes under is a category of three Um. (laughs) so what a person uh, who has an uh,